Good morning, everyone. I am here again with you, Debbie Gershenowitz from Cambridge University Press, doing our second installment of our Black History Month podcast series. We heard from Richard Blackett talking about fugitive slaves last week, and this week we are going to stay for a while with the concept of slave agency and slave flight and slave self-emancipation. But um, instead of moving from north, north to south, Jeffrey Care Ritchie is going to talk to us about coastal escape and the dimensions of maritime slavery, moving from the south to the Caribbean and by sea. Jeffrey Care Ritchie is professor of history at Howard University. And the book is entitled Rebellious Passage, The Creole Revolt and America's Coastal Slave Trade. I love that both your book and Richard Blackett's book are, are talking about um, running away, and, and again, I use the word agency, just um, really saying, you know, I, I, I must escape this oppression. I'm going to risk everything. How am I going to do that? And, and I've been really struck with the notions of boundaries, um, again, whether it's moving um, in the United States from one part of the country to another, and, and then this one where we're crossing um, oceans and also national boundaries. Um, this book takes us into a whole other dimension, um, bringing in diplomatic history and maritime history into the history of slavery. But before we get into that, I want to back up a little bit and um, do what historians like to do. You know, I love this book for many reasons, but one of them is that we're recovering a story that about something that people know about, but we haven't really written about it much. Um, unlike that other slave ship rebellion, the Amistad, which there's been movies, there's monuments, there's many, many books. And so I, Jeffrey, I wanna ask you, why does the Amistad get all the attention and, um, what was your journey in giving the Creole its time in the sun, which has been a long time coming? Well, I think the um, the reason why there's so much attention towards the Amistad is because it's a quintessentially American uh, story. Uh, it's a narrative of American freedom. Um, and I think the, the movie, in many ways, popularized the scholarship. Uh, there are some exceptions, of course. Uh, Marcus Redeker's book on the Amistad looks at the African dimensions. Michael Zeus's book on the Amistad looks at the Spanish slave trade. But essentially, most people think of the, um, the Amistad as, a, as an American story. The Creole, however, I think fits very uneasily into US, um, into this sort of narrative of US uh, liberty and liberation. For one thing, uh, it represents the Creole uh, engaged in slave trading, represents the continuation rather than the stopping of a saltwater trading in slaves. Most people think that Americans stopped trading slaves across the sea after the abolition of the Atlantic slave trade or American participation in it in 1808. The Creole suggests otherwise as part of this very lucrative uh, coastal uh, slave trade. Um, I also think that it's rather awkward to have the former colonial power, Britain, engaged in extending freedom, right, to people who are being denied their liberty in a republic which is dedicated to the principle of uh, natural, uh, natural rights of uh, uh, freedom. 
But I think we can go one step further. Um, even African American history, which is very rich, often sort of mirrors American uh, history. But the Creole uh, rebellion, successful Creole revolt, doesn't quite fit into it because freedom isn't something which is struggled for and eventually won in the United States. It's won in the Northern Caribbean. And that doesn't fit. So I think uh, this is one of the major reasons why the Creole has not sort of elicited the sort of attention um, that that the Amistad has. Right, right. So I I guess, again, looking at the Amistad and then the the south to north self-emancipation process, you know, um, there were allies and um, friends of the fugitives and other fugitives that were within the national boundaries of the United States. I mean, it's more of a noble story, right, for the, you know, American abolitionists for, but they're, you know, the, the, after the slaves who are the the captives, who are the true heroes of this book, um, the, um, the British Bahamians, Bahamians, Bahamians are, are their partners in freedom. Um, yes. at whereas the the American the non-captive Americans um, their role in this book is captors correct right that's right, right. that's right and I, I think that you know one of the key things here you you um, you mentioned it with your first question um, about my particular journey um, one of the things that I think is very very important to stress about this book is this notion of proximity what do I mean by that? Well, uh, it comes from a, um, a letter that the British Foreign Minister, Lord Aberdeen, wrote to the um, Special Envoy, uh, British Special Envoy based in Washington, uh, Lord Ashburton, in April of 1842. And he talked about proximity of borders, where um, the situation in 1842 basically aligned slave borders with free borders and this was a consequence of the British commitment to the abolition of the slave trade in the 1830s. Now in his letter he says you know up until the early 1830s this wasn't a problem because it was slave shore and slave shore but with the abolition of slavery this changes fundamentally the the dynamic in the 1830s in terms of the relationship between the Caribbean and the United States. And so you had the U.S. coastal slave trade occurring and really taking off in the 1820s and 1830s at precisely the time that the British are winding up their colonial slave uh, empire. And I think this notion of proximity is really quite critical because it is suggesting that although slave societies, post-emancipation societies, are national entities for obvious reasons in terms of territories, in terms of laws, in terms of polities. Nonetheless, there are certain times and certain places where they clash. And I think what the Creole helps us to understand is what happens (laughs) when they clash, right? And this is an important story because not only does it lead to the freedom, the emancipation of 130 plus captives from the Creole ship. But these captives um, and people who get their freedom are only the latest installment uh, from several other American slave trading ships in the 1830s 
which actually end up in uh, on British slave soil, or free soil, excuse me, not because of slave insurrections, but rather because of poor weather. So you have, for example, the four of the ship's names, the Comet, the Encominium, the uh, Enterprise, and the Hamosa, all of which were U.S. slave trading ships moving from the upper south to the lower south, all of which, because of bad weather, hurricanes, etc., get driven into um, British ports, NASA um, uh, in the Bahamas, uh, Hamilton in Bermuda. And the British, because of their policy of abolition, uh, abolishing slavery, um, support their freedom. So this, is, this, this question of proximity is really re very, very interesting. So with that in mind, um, at the time, um, you know, in 1841, when um, the captives are on board the Amistad, did they know, you know, either, you know, if there were literate captor, captives or through word of mouth, do they know about these Caribbean sites of freedom, you know, the, these new sites of freedom, you know, that, that are beyond, you know, going to Canada or going, you know, someplace else. Do they, what, do we know that th this was a plan, that they, they knew this was on, they could possibly get there, they knew this was a chance for freedom to go there? And how did those stories circulate? Yes, they, uh, they did. Um, I think one of the sort of the arrogant assumptions that we make about our contemporary period is that because of social media, <laughs> we are so much uh, uh, better informed than, um, uh, than our predecessors. Well, just taking a look at <laughs> social media today obviously challenges that <laughs> assumption, right? But I do think that uh, it's quite clear that in the documentary record, and it's quite voluminous on the Creole revolt, um, there are, there's evidence of the, uh, the, 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 the rebels deliberately choosing to steer the ship after their successful slave revolt of November the 9th, 1841, steering it to NASA because NASA was the nearest free port for them. And they knew because several ships prior to that had lost their captive slaves. And those, ca those ships have returned to the United States without, without. Uh, uh, without them, right? And I, I, and I think that um, if, you, if, you, if you think for a moment of sort of, if you think of ships as sort of conduits of information, if you think of Richmond as a port, if you think of New Orleans as a port, if you think of Charleston as a port, right? There's the dissemination of information that sailors are engaged in. There are newspapers which are read and are which are um, uh, uh, exchanged, etc. So word of mouth gets around. And a number of the captives um, in these uh, American slave trading ships are sitting in prisons in Baltimore, in, you know, in Richmond, um, in Norfolk, Virginia, awaiting their transportation south, and they hear of these things. They, they hear about these, or they might have even read of them, okay? And I think that's sort of, those are some of the ways in which that information got to them. Right, right. So that leads me to a question um, that, that brings this story up to the present. You know, we, we've talked about 
crossing borders, um, you know, uh, crossing national borders, and you know when government gets involved, and you know all of this, you know, and um, we we see this happening all over the world, <laughs> you know, and and again, you know, on on land and also by sea, you know, I mean over here, you know, and again last week I was talking with Richard about um, the border here with Mexico, but when you know, I mean, it, every week, probably every day, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, boats that are going from Northern Africa to Lampedusa and, um, you know, what happens there, you know, do you, you, you don't hear, sadly, about as many as success stories, I think, now with this going on than what, what happened with the Creole, um, but, you know, what, what, what lessons have been learned, you know, how, how do you see what happened in 1841 having relevance to what's happening in um, 2019? Okay, so that's a very important question. Um, I think I would make two points. Firstly, this notion of proximate borders of unfreedom and freedom, right? Um, and what makes sort of the sort of the US-Mexico um, situation different is here we're dealing with maritime borders, right? So we, we think of boat people from the Caribbean heading into North America or trying to get into North America. We think of boat people from northern Africa, uh, from the littoral coastline, trying to get into uh, southern Europe, whether it be Spain, uh, Italy or, uh, or, or Greece. So I think that's the first point. Proximate borders of unfreedom and freedom have not changed. The nature of the freedom and unfreedom, of course, has changed with the abolition of slavery. But you've still got these proximate borders, and I think that, that that that's critical. The second point is I think that a lot of these folks are similar to a lot of these contemporary folks who are boat people, refugees, are similar to those on the Creole and others who are engaged in slave rebellions on these ships. Um, this is part, I think, of a human quest for liberty. And I think... Uh, until uh, until societies sort of move towards the creation of, of, of nation states which are all free and which in which we can get we no longer have this sort of proximity, then we're going to continue to see these sorts of uh, human quests for liberty, right. and um, I think that's really the important point. Right. Right. So now let's go back in time. I, we're running out of time soon, but um, you know, you you start the book. Debbie, I'm, I'm so hope you're going to ask me a about a couple of gems of um, of research here because I got to I've got to share them with you. Okay, yes, I was going to ask you to tell me a little bit about Elijah Morris and how he is sort of the the unsung hero of this story and what you do. But if you have other gems, um, th this is your moment. Um, oh, great! Thanks. Share anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, um, all right, uh, Elijah Morris. Most people, when they think of the leadership of the Creole slave ship revolt, they mention Madison Washington. But this is because the liberator, the important Massachusetts-based right uh, anti-slavery uh, journal, featured a special article on Madison Washington as the leader of the Creole Revolt in February of 1842. But apart from that, we have very little information on him. Elijah Morris, however, who has been known as one of the rebels, 
was not only a, uh, a rebel leader, but research in London uh, and in NASA and also in Washington, D.C. has sort of unpacked a very interesting guy born in 1818 in Virginia. And that is your research, we should add. I mean, you went all over the world to work on That's right, that's right. Uh, and um, I found um, the, the most interesting documents I found on Elijah Morris were land deeds for land that he purchased uh, once he was freed from from jail in the NASA in April of 1842. Um, and what he does is he settles in a village called Gambia, which is just outside of, of NASA in the Bahamas, where he works on the land, he fishes, and uh, he, uh, he markets some of his goods. Um, he gets married, he has a family, and in 1870, uh, uh, 1878, he buys the land in Gambia, and the deed I found in the um, registration, uh, records of registration, right, in downtown um, NASA. His son, Alexander uh, Morris, was born in Gambia on that land, and he himself, 20 years later, inherited the land, uh, and after his father's death, and he also bought some land um, in an adjoining village called Adelaide uh, 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 Village. So I thought that was really interesting, the research sort of telling us more about who Elijah Morris was as opposed to sort of Madison Washington. Um, John Hagen is just very briefly an interesting person. He was a cotton factor, bank investor and slave trader in New Orleans. On November 13th, 1841, he signed an insurance contract for nine slaves on the Creole, okay? Now, this is an interesting date, November 13th. At that time, the slaves were no longer slaves. They were free, and they were walking <laughs> the land of the Bahamas, right? And this guy, Hagen, is writing an insurance contract for people who were free and no longer his property. But Hagen gets even more interesting than that sort of irony. In the 1840s, he he purchases a woman by the name a, a woman by the name of Lucy Ann Cheatham, and in 1856 he files suit for her freedom and the freedom of her two children, uh, Frederica and William. And that same year, 1856, in his will, he bequeaths ten thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars, and his residential property to Lucy's children along with $5,000 for their maintenance, right? And after his death in 1856, um, Lucy uh, is living in this palatial mansion in the heart of New Orleans with her two children, and she alternates her name between Cheatham and Hagen. And this is quite fascinating, right? How Hagen, who's a slaveholder, dies, okay, and wills uh, this money to a former slave whose freedom he purchases and, um, you know, uh, provides for his and her children. And I think what's important about that is the security that that money gives to that family. This is quite a fascinating sort of aspect of the story, which I'd not, I've never seen, no one's mentioned before in the Creole, which I found through looking at some of these wills. Right. And do you, it's interesting, you know, that... I doubt the Creole necessarily had an impact on him changing, but you know, you're talking about this person who's furious because his slaves are free. He probably wished he could employ some measures of the Fugitive Slave Act to get him back, right? And then, what? <laughs> That's a very good point. Yeah. Ten of course, years later, he's bequeathing 
everything. That, that, that's right. But, you know, for me, Hagen's, Hagen's importance actually, rather than going sort of, um, rather than looking at sort of that way, I would, I would look at it another way, uh, Debbie, which is to say, actually, he's one of several slave traders who end up having interesting relationships with women right. who right. were their former property who end up becoming property. There's another one, um, George Apperson. He was a major slave trader in Norfolk, Virginia, moves to Richmond, becomes a slave trader again, ends up having a relationship with Louisa um, Apperson. And this guy is amazing. Louisa Apperson um, and he uh, moved to Massachusetts and he spends half of his time in Virginia and half of his time in Massachusetts. When he's in Massachusetts, he's, he says that his wife is free. When he's in Richmond, <laughs> she stays up in Massachusetts, right? He just has this slave called Louisa Apperson, right? And it's this fascinating sort of relationship. And again, she he dies before her and she goes from being property to being propertied. Right. Um, right. Much like right. Lucy uh, Cheatham. And I think that's that, that's fascinating. And, you know, part of writing, one of the frustrations of writing this book was that I want to say much more about women and women as part of the historical record. And, you know, I try to do that by looking at these particular women and also trying to focus on those enslaved women and girls as part of the um, uh, uh, the manifest, the ship manifest for the Creole. And I did what I could, but the, the documentary record is quite limited. Right, right. Well, maybe that'll be your next project. What are your... Now, I hope you're just sort of relaxing and sitting back and not thinking about any next project, but you're an academic, so I know that's not true. Um, <laughs> not true. What's next? Are you going to continue with looking at, you know, the, the maritime dimensions of this and, you know, sort of looking... Again, I, I just find that we're in this really interesting moment where we're looking at how, you know, slavery, the Atlantic dimensions, you know, how it becomes a Caribbean story. You know, it's not right. just about, you know, sectionalism, <laughs> that we're beyond right. that. Are you going to go further with that? Or are you thinking about something completely different? Well, I think I'm, I'm thinking about something which is different, but also similar. What do I mean by that paradox? It's different in the sense that uh, it's going to be a study of the international dimensions of anti-slavery uh, thought, but thought in terms of words and actions. Um, this comes out of a previous book I wrote on West Indian emancipation um, and looking at the ways in which West Indian emancipation had a sort of international impact. It wasn't just regional, right? Um, but it's similar in the sense that you know, as a person who's very, very interested in this notion of proximity and sort of a much smaller world than perhaps we might might think, I want to turn from this particular small but very important successful slave rebellion on a ship to the broader political dimensions of anti-slavery thought, right, to recognize the ways in which people are mobilizing around making all borders free. I think that's a very, very interesting historical um, project. And as I say, that the database of all of these songs, orations, poems, um, speeches, which are sort of delivered, and I've collected over 200 of them, 
uh, around the English-speaking Atlantic world in the 19th century, and I want to do something uh, 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 with them. Um, and I think that would sort of had would have hopefully will have contemporary uh, relevance because it will get people to think about, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you mobilize right across borders, which is very very important right um, in this sort of world of ours in the 21st century. I mean, these issues of unfree borders are not. They're not national. You, you you can't deal with them nationally. I mean, they have to be international, precisely because dealt with internationally, precisely because they are proximate. Right. So Ab that's absolutely. So that's hopefully the the project. Right. Well, I will look forward to that, and I hope I will have the privilege and honor of reading more as you develop it. So I Thank think I think we are done, and okay. um, everyone go out and buy Rebellious Passage. Fascinating story. Fascinating people and a monumental work by an excellent historian, Jeffrey Kier Ritchie. Thank you, Debbie. All right, thanks. <laughs>